0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books and Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Olivia Porter, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Caroline Starkey about her new book, Women in British Buddhism, Commitment, Connection, Community, published by in 2019 Caroline is a sociologist of religion and associate professor at the University of Leeds. Caroline has published on gender and ordination issues in contemporary British Buddhism and helped conduct the first national survey of Buddhist and Jain buildings in England. Women in British Buddhism is based on detailed ethnographic research, which explores the varied experiences of women who converted to Buddhism in contemporary Britain and analyzes the implications of their experiences for understanding the translation and transference of Buddhist practices temporally and geographically. Caroline examines how women initially engage with Buddhist groups, their perspectives on religious discipline, and their relationships to ideas of gender equality and feminism. Whilst the recent study of Buddhism outside Asia has tended to emphasise the transnational and the global, this book de-centres this, highlighting the significance of locality and immediate community in contemporary women's faith practices showcasing the narratives and life stories of 25 ordained women across seven different Buddhist groups connected to Britain. The research in this book challenges uncritical assumptions made about Western women who engage with Buddhist practices and provides a new framing of contemporary ordination through a detailed and holistic examination of a group of Buddhist practitioners that have received little focused attention. Welcome to the podcast, Caroline. Thanks, Olivia. Um, I was wondering if we could start by you telling us a bit about your background and how your career in Buddhist studies began.
0: I think, as uh, you know, we might talk about this um, through the podcast, but some of uh, the decisions that I've made or the, my roots into it were not really that linear, and they kind of happened by accident or maybe karma. Okay? so um, I, um, I didn't. I, um, I did a history degree. Um, and, and and then i became a social worker so i was a social worker um in the uk for quite some time um in various different roles um and um i wanted to um investigate you i found that my social work practice i was seeing more and more um the role of religion in, in public life and i uh, went to the university of leeds to do a master's degree um whilst i was working full-time just to kind of scratch that Uh, intellectual itch and to find out really a bit more about religion in public which has been quite a feature of um, of work from um, at the University of Leeds. Um, I I didn't really intend to um, write about Buddhist women and I certainly didn't intend to write about um, Buddhism in the British context. Actually what I wanted to do and what my original plan was, was um, was to write about social welfare, religion and social welfare, and particularly in context in in Southeast Asia. So I was really interested in the Cambodian context. I grew up, um, I didn't grow up in the UK, and I grew up in different parts of Southeast Asia. And so I kind of was keen to go back. So what I decided to do when I decided to leave social work was to do some research about social welfare. Um, And then I was just putting a PhD proposal together. And I Went for a coffee in a coffee shop, and stood in front of me was a, a British woman, a Scottish woman, um, dressed in full Tibetan nuns' robes, um, and in the queue for um, for a coffee. It was a really long queue, actually, and I think we were both desperate for a drink, and we we got talking and spent an awful lot of time talking, and then I began to change my interest because I thought, you know, I was I was looking far away from home for understanding Buddhism and and contemporary Buddhist practice I was looking far away from home. And I thought, actually I think there's something here at home to look at. There's something interesting to look at. So I began to dig and dig and look in some of the, um, look at the literature, look at what was available about understanding women's Buddhist practice in this context. And at the time that I was writing, this is sort of about 2009, probably 2010, um there wasn't much literature available. And that really struck me. It really struck me. So this kind of led me in. And I, I think I've always had like one foot in Buddhist studies, one foot in the sociology of religion or religious studies. And I like to think that I draw on all. I've, I've certainly felt very welcomed within Buddhist studies within a UK context. Um, but I also like to think I draw from um, a variety of different disciplines in order to understand what's going on in contemporary practice.
1: Okay, so it sounds like it wasn't a straightforward path, but um, it brought you to writing this book, Women in British Buddhism. So this was a continuation of your PhD project.
0: Yes, the book was. So the book was my P- the book was based in my PhD research, um, and but it took me a, a little while to publish it as a book because um, I I think after I'd got after um, I finished my PhD. I think I actually wanted to rewrite some things. I ended up rewriting an awful lot for the book, so it, it really. Although yes, it looks like my PhD. Actually, it's um it's had a lot of stuff. Um, it, it's had a huge amount of change, um both of the kind of um finessing of some of the arguments, um and also as as a postdoc project, I worked on the first national survey of Buddhist buildings. Um, in in Britain, which you mentioned, with Professor Emma Tomlin that was funded by Historic England. And I began to get really interested in the kind of location and the physical space stuff, which had been a tiny feature of my PhD, but not much. And so I began to kind of... draw on the ethnographic work I conducted over sort of about five years during my PhD um, and then some later postdoc work which kind of that's what makes the book it's the kind of combination of of both of those things and then some more later work um, and uh, a thinking that I was doing so yes it is based in my PhD research um, and uh, but then developed by some um, of my postdoc
1: It's nice to hear that as a PhD student because I think you get so focused on your PhD being kind of like the be all and end all of your work, but actually there's going to be opportunities for you to add more and edit and kind of like broaden your um, outlook. Um, So you mentioned that you had a chance encounter with this nun in a coffee shop, which sounds really fun. Um, Was it this encounter that made you think about women specifically and converts, or had that been a kind of theme that you were thinking about before?
0: Um, it, it probably was this encounter and it's funny the way you narrate it back these kind of things jump out to you a bit more um i i'd always been i i had a personal practice although i don't talk about this in the book and a number of the people who have um reviewed the book have, have identified this and we could maybe talk about that later on so i don't really talk about my own personal practice um in the book but that is a kind of a key part so you know ever since the age of 18 i have been involved with um various buddhist groups personally um, and they were um, in the main mostly kind of convert focus groups. Um, I uh, so I kind of had been involved in in the Buddhist scene in the UK for quite some time. And um, this is way before I'd um, begun my PhD uh, or thinking about my PhD research. Um, and I, I'd had a, a variety of different discussions. I think within those groups about the place of women in those groups and so in, it, within some of the groups the discussions about women were uh, allowed and with some of them the discussions were kind of shut down um, and I guess that was always a kind of frustration for me because I wanted to have these discussions about gender, gender equality, gender inequality And kind of even beyond that, more like women's roles in contributing to the building of a number of these movements and intentional communities that actually were and are still really important to me as a person. So this chance encounter did actually shift things because I can remember thinking at the time, wow, I I didn't know there were that many um, British Buddhist nuns. And, And that kind of struck me because I had been involved in various communities, so I probably should have known, but I kind of hadn't paid it much attention. And then I really, looking in the literature, I realised that it, no one had really paid it that much attention. There had been some fantastic studies that had been done before. So I'm not saying this hadn't been looked at at all, but there had been some fantastic studies before, which I drew and, and draw really heavily on in, um, in my PhD, in my uh, in my book and in my PhD in research. Um, but I think it probably was meeting this one person um, who really started to make me think, about the about, like I said, the importance of studying things um close to home. M- my PhD supervisor was uh, Professor Kim Knott, or one of them was Professor Kim Knott, and she's always been um keen in her work to look at ideas of locality and she founded um or was pretty central in uh, the founding of the Community Religions Project here at the University of Leeds, which has been always interested in religion close at hand. And I think I was really shaped by those kinds um those kinds of things in 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 just wanting to look at what was going on on my doorstep, not just wanting to see Buddhism um, as outside of the UK, but actually thinking about Buddhism being studied in Britain and in the UK is actually just as important as studying it elsewhere. I mean, it's a bit more rainy, so there were certainly some points during my PhD study and during subsequent research that I really wished. I had been in Thailand or been in Cambodia researching. You know, when it's pouring with rain, it's four o'clock in the morning, you're driving down the M1, trying to find some kind of Buddhist monastery that's in the middle of the nowhere, and it's dumping with rain and you're freezing cold, and you're really kind of regretting your life choices um, in terms of where you study. And you're really kind of starting to think, I wish I'd chosen a warmer climate or chosen somewhere that's slightly more exotic um, (laughs) than uh, Hemel Hempstead. But... I think there's so much mileage and I really want to encourage uh, people to look at Buddhism and look at the importance
1: of studying Buddhism close to home um, and, and how much value we can get from that as scholars. That's really interesting. Yeah, I definitely found some of the accounts in the book of nuns going to Tesco and <laughs> the pouring rain really interesting and funny. Um, just because like it's not something name. that you. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, it's not something that you'd automatically uh, like associate with the Buddhist context, but this is the reality of being a British Buddhist practitioner, I suppose.
0: Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, you've really got to, um, I, I'm I'm so keen on the mundane stuff. Like I really like that, um, you know, the difficulties of wearing robes when it's absolutely chucking with rain and what happens when the robes just soak up all the water and you know, what happens when you go to Tesco's or what happens when you're kind of talking, you're trying to sort out a bill on the phone and they can't make sense of your Buddhist name. Like, I love those mundane details. It's what, um, it, as an ethnographer, it's kind of what m- made me, sit up and pay attention and that really kind of situated stuff in in the contemporary British context.
1: Yeah I definitely enjoyed reading those um, excerpts from the book. Um, One of the questions I had was well came to my mind as I was reading the introduction was how did you choose your sample of 25 women?
0: So when I I initially conceived the study and this kind of might help um, students across the board. When I initially conceived my study, I had this mind that I would look at one or two organizations in really great depth. And that just kind of didn't pan out. So I kind of um, when I was trying to get in touch with, as you always do when you start a study, you write, you know, a letter or an email to um, an organization or through a contact that you might have. And kind of I wasn't really getting many bites. Um, And I don't know what was happening with that, really. It's sometimes really hard to say. I was getting many bites and so I decided to cast the net wider and actually I used a number of um, gatekeepers so I began to talk to lots of people about my project in different um, uh, umbrella Buddhist organizations in in the UK um, and they said well I know somebody you might want to talk about might, might want to talk to and then they said well I, I also know somebody else you might want to talk to but you know she's not from this organization she's from a different organization and I began to think well maybe just limiting it to one organisation, although that's really valid, I actually think I want to get more of a sense of what might be going on across a larger number of groups. And actually through that, I, I found out about groups that I, I hadn't been aware of in the past, that actually were, were doing some really, really interesting work, um, that were allowing different kind of spaces for women's practice to flourish. Um, and so I just kind of let it grow a bit organically. Um And and the women were mostly cherry picked. So uh, and on also snowball sample, really. So as you want to put it in those terms in that I I started with some and then they pointed me out to others and then they pointed me out to others. And then I guess as I got a bit of a name for looking at these kind of things within organisations, I suppose a little bit of trust was built up that I could um, that I was going to be trustworthy and tell stories in the right kind of way.
1: That's interesting. So it sounds like it was, you know, you started off somewhere and then you ended up um, finding new people to talk to and new themes and avenues and new groups. And I think that definitely reflects many, like the beginning of lots of research. I'm definitely when I started my PhD, I thought I was going to do one thing and I ended up doing something else when I began. Um, I think people should talk about that more because it always seems like people always know what they're doing straight away. And often that isn't really the case. Um, And you get more interesting insights from just going with the flow sometimes. I agree. And so I I, I really think that um, you have to be really responsive when you're
0: doing um, ethnographic or fieldwork research, because you kind of have you shouldn't really go into it just thinking with with these preconceived ideas. Although I did. And I think we all do go into stuff with preconceived ideas. And you have to have a plan, like you can you have to have a plan. You've got to get something done in a finite amount of time. But I think being flexible and kind of seeing where things go is is just a, a really useful tool in order to try to understand what's going on on the ground. And things never look like how you expect them to look, though. In the end, I've always found that all, all the research that I've done—it kind of never really ended up looking the way I expected it to. And I feel kind of cool with that because it ended up in a different place, but that place was probably more reflective of my participants' experiences than the assumptions that I made in the beginning. And being willing to be a bit more flexible, um, I think offers you a lot more.
1: Definitely. Um and speaking of ethnography, in chapter one, it launches us immediately into an ethnographic account, which I really enjoyed. And it's an account of the Dharma talk um, by Venerable Kanda, a bikini who you describe as on a homecoming mission to establish the first Theravada bikini monastery in the UK. Um, why? Could you tell us a bit more about that, firstly? And also, why did you start with this event?
0: So for me, starting with this event... <clears throat> is um is important because what this event kind of encapsulated encapsulated i think is some of the tensions within um buddhist movements contemporary buddhist movements in relation to gender so what had uh, happened within a number of uh, theravada uh, buddhist groups in britain is a is a tension around women's ability to ordain to the same level as um to the same level as men, and this has caused a number of tensions within particular communities, um, and uh, and there were significant tensions as well. They led to um, some some significant community breakdown. Um, I mean, listeners uh, may may know of um, what happened with Ajahn Brahm, um, uh, uh, the monk who had facilitated some bikuni ordination bikuni ordinations from his monastery. Um, and Associated Monasteries in Perth in Western Australia and who was, in his words, excommunicated from the Forest Sangha. Um, and um, Venerable Chanda, um, who is, um, ha- was sent or given the opportunity to come to Britain to establish the first um, bhikkhuni um, monastery uh, training centre um, in, in the British context and she is a disciple of Ajahn Brahm. <clears throat> so what's, it, it is a controversial thing um, for lots of global reasons and also lots of British reasons. But I started with this, I think, um, because I didn't study that, that particular organisation, the Anukampa Bakuni Project. That came after I'd done my research. But I was trying to bring um, things a bit up to date. But more often than... But in fairness, the, the example, starting with that, was just me trying to show... Of these tiny little things. So this was a one small talk. I think there might have been about, I don't know, maximum fifty people there. And she was giving what I think might have been one of her first talks on British soil. It's tiny, it made no ripples in terms of kind of academic understanding. It made no ripples in terms of um you know social media attention. But it was a tiny thing of of, of this female nun, of this bikuni, giving a a a Dhamma talk um, to a small group of people in a very localised Buddhist centre in Manchester, kind of establishing women's practice and the centrality of women's practice to um, Buddhist movements in this country. But also it kind of allowed me to um, talk about the controversies around female ordination really early on because that, that kind of underpins much of the study of women in Buddhism both in the West and, and elsewhere, but, but also particularly in the West. And one of the things I was trying to do in the book is, is so even though I've kind of situated that early on, I'm trying to kind of ch- trouble and challenge the idea that it's just all about fighting for gender equality, because in many of my participants' experiences, that kind of wasn't the case. You know, their their attention to community, their attention to practice, their discipleship really to their teachers is really central in the kind of things that they're doing. Um, so I kind of wanted to trouble and push against the, um, some of the assumptions that's come out of some kind of liberal Western feminist thinking that um, posits um, Western women as always kind of troubling the hierarchy because I didn't find that particularly. So I kind of thought it was a good vignette to start with um, because it allowed me to, to explore really early on um, some of the tensions and some of the issues.
1: Definitely. I've got a broader question about that. In the book, you touch on themes of feminism and Bikuni ordination, which are some people would consider controversial. And I was wondering if you felt apprehensive about approaching those topics or it's, if it was something that you felt comfortable with initially.
0: You know what? I'm going to tell you the truth. I, I felt really apprehensive about it. <clears throat> and, um, Actually, actually, no. I think I'm going to change my mind there. In the beginning, I don't think I did at all. So I just I came to this project with a load of assumptions, and my assumption was I thought everybody that I interviewed would be a fully fully paid up member of um, of like the feminist brigade. Okay, we're all we're all trying to carve out spaces for women's practice. You know, all the literature I'd read about women in Buddhism was often kind of. Um, colored with that lens that it's about women trying to carve out spaces for their own practices, doing things against the hierarchy, kind of um, buying into these kind of feminist um, or what I consider to be feminist ideals. Um, And I think I came to the project just assuming absolutely everybody would be on board with that. And the reality really wasn't the case. And actually, I think in the beginning, probably participants didn't really want to speak to me because I think they might have assumed that I was also pushing that. And Because the reality is that some of these, some of the um, more radical feminist kind of ideas have caused division within some um, on the ground Buddhist communities. Um, And I'm not sitting in judgment on either side in in there. Actually, I'm trying to what I'm trying to do in the book is tread a really fine line between my own personal perspective and the perspectives of my participants. And I'm really trying hard not to overlay my own personal perspective onto theirs. And what I've tried to do in the book is really show the variety of positions on ideas of feminism and gender equality that are espoused by Western women. Because I I think from the literature that you can have, that variety is kind of obscured slightly. And I wanted to challenge some assumptions but did I feel tense about mentioning? Yeah, absolutely, because you kind of piloted in you're going into these um, long-held, very well-established intentional communities, and you don't really want to say anything that's going to offend or upset anybody. And you don't really want to say stuff that makes you feel like you're trying to um, you're trying to cause a problem as a researcher. And I spent an awful lot of time, at least I hope I did, and I hope my participants think this, that I spent an awful lot of time trying to make them feel um, comfortable and to be trustworthy in what I was doing. What this meant in in the actual final book project is that I think I left quite a lot of stuff out that I thought might identify my participants or that just might be, um, yeah, well, essentially might identify my participants or cause them some trouble. And I think that that's a really important ethical decision that I made and one that I really stick by, is that I think we have a responsibility as researchers. So, you know, if I'd include certain comments that might be easily attributable to people, that might make for for amazing reading in a book or a book project, but I don't think that's super ethical. Um, And I was really, really keen to both reflect the variety of experiences amongst my participants and to be honest and truthful as a researcher but not to cause issues for my participants in terms of identification. because these So these are still small-ish communities that if you know things about British Buddhism, it's possible to identify, it could be possible to identify some people. So I worked really hard to um, try to establish trust. And I did that in lots of different ways. Um, with many of my participants, they saw and commented and could change transcripts with a handful of participants, they actually saw and read chapters, both of the book and of the PhD thesis and could comment on it. And that led to lots of interactions. So, you know, if I wrote a chapter, and one of my participants, um, I can remember she saying, well, I don't think I really agree with you there. I actually don't, I don't really like what you've written there. I don't think it's right. But actually, I did think it was right. So we were kind of having um, loads of uh, much deeper discussions way beyond the kind of original interviews about how I should write about that. And um, what I should say and actually I love those kinds of interactions because I do think and that what I hope is that the research itself is kind of more collaborative so it's still me writing it it's still my analysis as a researcher and my participants may agree or disagree with the conclusions that I've come to But I'm kind of hoping that we um, that we had something in the end that we could all agree on that was a, a collaborative picture um, at the time of what was going on and things changed so rapidly. In, um, in Buddhist communities. You now I said this right at the end of the book. <clears throat> you know, by the time this goes to print, um, some participants will have, some of my participants and some o- o- of these communities will, will change, you know, people leave, people disrobe, um, new people join, some people take over, some people take a step back, people physically move. And actually these are, you know, you can never have the final word in this. These are rapidly changing dynamic communities. And what I wanted to get across in the book is the importance of women's roles in establishing, building, maintaining these communities. Because so often in our histories, um, or so in my opinion, so often in our histories of um, Buddhist communities and development, um, particularly in the UK, but also elsewhere, women's stories, women's engagement with um, establishing communities and setting things up is often just just. Maybe overlooks too strong, but is um, just seem to be to just seem to play second fiddle to men's stories and men's histories. And I kind of wanted to talk about how women themselves have built um, built these communities, and not just the high profile women, although they are really important. And there has been a number of high profile um, British Buddhist women. But I wanted to talk about what I call in the book the rank and file women. I'm not even sure if that's the right term, but that's the book that I use in the book. Actually, some of the ordinary members who might not go down necessarily um, in in the history books, but their stories should be, and their stories are really important. And both the kind of uh, stories of their Buddhist achievement is important, but also their kind of mundane stories of living and the hardship of life. You know, the ones I liked the best were often the stories of um, of women when they started the communities in the kind of 60s and 70s and the real hardship that some of them went through to get these fantastic buildings up and running to the state they are now. And I didn't want those stories to be
1: lost. It's so interesting to hear about how collaborative the editing process was with you and your informants. Um, I think that does lead to a more nuanced and more holistic kind of outcome because you get a more balanced view maybe um yeah it's so interesting how some of these important themes have been overlooked for such a long time and I suppose a lot of scholars just I don't know stick to a particular um I don't know maybe outdated um view about what Buddhism is and what Buddhism should be and how it can be applied to the British context but actually there's all sorts of nuances that um, make it what it is and that's why I really enjoy this these ethnographic accounts because you hear about these was it north is it Northumberland that there's the um, is it a monastery yep throttle hole in Northumberland yeah yeah I enjoyed that about how you were so cold and it was rainy and um, everything's a bit like creaky that was really hard actually. actually. Like I can
0: remember, <laughs> um, so I used to kind of go to these uh, Buddhist centers, and I've been to Throssel. I have a huge place in my heart for Throssel Hall. I think it's a wonderful place. Um, and but I can remember kind of on on um, when I was on field work. You know, it's actually really physically difficult sometimes on field work. So I kind of was going there. Um, you sleep in a big main hall. Um, you, um, you you know, it's very regimented in terms of um meal times and the kind of physically physically embodied practice that you do in these places like cleaning your teeth with mindfulness um eating particular things like the, the layout of the um the layout of the meal and i mean i think it's absolutely wonderful and my goodness did it teach me so much it, it taught me so much about buddhist practice it taught me so much about the dedication of these monks uh, female monks and, um, and male monks in kind of um keeping these practices going in, in, in the wilds of Northumberland and um, and the importance of the kind of physicality of, of building things. So, you, you know, as part of the day, you kind of had a work a work practice part of the day. Um, and I remember I was asked to, to dig some ditches and I found it really hard and I kept sort of saying, oh, can I just go in the kitchen? Like, you know, I'm OK at kitchen stuff. Can I just go in the kitchen? And i like, no. It, you know, and I think it was about putting myself out of my comfort zone Um, and putting individuals out of their comfort zones and not to say that we should only do jobs that we think we're the best at. And I learned so much about how you keep communities going and how you make communities. It's really, really hard work. And that's what I wanted to get across in the book is that how these, you know, Throstle was bought for a small amount of money. It was like a disused uh, cow shed. And, and you almost can't imagine, I think, people were sleeping um, you know, with very little um, heating or hot water, um, and you really can't imagine the kind of vision and dedication it, it takes to make these spaces work, particularly with no state support, with very little um, lay support. We're only talking small communities. And kind of keeping, starting, keeping and maintaining these British Buddhist communities is, is, is an incredible feat of... Um, foresight and takes a lot of blood sweat and tears and that's kind of what i wanted to get across in the book is um is it's very easy to look at men's contributions to that because they're often all written about but it's less easy to look at women's contributions to that because as we know in many religious traditions women are overlooked in terms of their contributions to keeping things to establishing things um and maintaining things and particularly rank and file women i think
1: Definitely. And at these um, different meditation centres and monasteries, you focus specifically on convert nuns, but were there also some practitioners from Southeast Asia, or were the, was the community mainly white British?
0: It's really hard to say because it depends on the group. So, I mean, this is this is one of the issues. I kind of started my project thinking that things would things would all look roughly the same, and actually, that what you find when you begin to scratch the surface, and you only need to scratch the surface a little bit, is a huge amount of diversity in British Buddhist practice. You know, it, it, it's almost it's really difficult to say it's one thing British Buddhism, and I, I'm not the first person to say that. Far from it. Um, As actually Buddhism's is is better because I think there's so much diversity. Um, and yes, without a shadow of a doubt, not all the participants, um, not um all of my participants are exactly the same. Um, not all of the people within those organizations, not all of them are converts. Um, and the term convert is a bit complicated. Because are we talking about people who make decisions to change their religious practice in adulthood? Are we talking about people whose parents might have converted to Buddhism? um, And actually converts a a bit tricky. And actually, really, what does it mean? So there is um, lots of discussion about demarcating Western Buddhist groups just on the line of convert or heritage or ethnic Buddhist, because the reality is much more blurred than that. Um, but I did choose to focus on um, people who converted in adulthood. I, um, it, it's so funny when you reflect back on research projects and research decisions you make. I wonder if I might have made a different one if I was doing it again. And certainly if I was doing it again, what I think I might do is have more of a comparison between those who are white British converts and those who don't fit into that, um, that demographic. Um, but I still uh, remain really interested in conversion as a sociologist. And I kind of, I I thought my project at the beginning was going to be about ordination. So that's what I thought my project was going to be about. And when I designed the interview schedule, I kind of designed this um, warm-up, warm-up activity or warm-up question that was like, "Oh, tell me about your journey to Buddhism, because I kind of thought that might get people talking. I didn't really pay it a lot of mind when I was designing I thought oh well that might be just like a 5 minute conversation that will just kind of grease the wheels of our of our talking um, and then in the end the stories about their journeys to buddhism their conversion experiences if you want to use that term um fascinated me there were loads of similarities between them but there are also some really interesting differences like how people got in touch with buddhism um, why they chose certain groups, um, what happened to their social lives after after they began or touched base with Buddhist organizations and as that developed. And it turned out to be those were the most interesting stories for me in a way. Um, and And I spent far less time, although it still is a feature of the book, far less time talking about other things such as ordination ceremony, for example, because I just loved the conversion narratives. And then when I was doing my research, I got really into reading um, sociological and anthropological work on conversion. Um, and that just kind of took over the book, really. Um, and I, I still do. I still think there is so much mileage in looking at uh, convert stories, particularly as they change generationally. And I think we see such a vast change now. Um, in in British Buddhist practice and perhaps elsewhere too between um, from the kind of 50s 60s 70s the kind of uh, hippie vibe um to now, where Buddhism is is really much more mainstream in the in the British context. I mean, you can buy a statue of the Buddha in Sainsbury's or Homebase or Bargain Madness. I mean, you you can everywhere. Mindfulness is so ubiquitous. The kind of ideas of Buddhism are so much more ubiquitous. You've got so much access on the internet to all this stuff. And I was talking to women who had become interested in Buddhism in the '60s, where they could they just had one local library and they found one book on Buddhism. And if they wanted to start a meditation group, they had to do it themselves. So I think we see such a change maybe over in the last 40 or 50 years in the, the situation for Buddhism in this country, which is actually fast growing. Um, and certainly fast growing, not just in terms of, of uh, numbers, say, on the census who might tick Buddhist, but also fast growing in terms of our popular culture and our consciousness about um, religion. And I think there's been such an interesting generational change in, in converts practice. They just became so interesting to me. Um, and it became a way to really get to know my participants. I think also the truth is, and I don't really talk about this in the book that much, and this this could be a flaw of the book, and I'm happy to explore those kind of flaws and what I do differently. And I've since written some methodological um, pieces about my own positionality, and I don't really talk about it much in the book, is that, you know, I have um, been part of, convert Buddhist groups um I had a bit more of a a, um a uh this wasn't something Buddhism wasn't something I came to personally in adulthood this is something that happened to me more as a child but um but I have been and I still am part of convert Buddhist groups so I suppose you know I am writing and thinking about me and my engagement as well as when I'm looking at women who have made strong commitments that's really different to my own um and I also always remain in, interested in, in non mainstream ways of living. You know, these, in many ways, these were women, these were participants who rejected mainstream ways of living. And, and I think they're terribly brave. I have a huge amount of respect for my participants. Um, I, I think they're terribly brave. They've done things that I could only hope to do. Um, and I, I kind of hope that comes through in the book just how incredible I think many of these women are.
1: It's interesting that you touch on your um, own involvement in different convert groups. And it's this theme of kind of insider outsider that kind of haunts the ethnographer all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this element of reflexivity that you want to include in your work, but you don't know how to kind of do that in a very academic kind of way. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think those kinds of nuances and comments make for a very interesting reading. I um, okay, this conversation... So
0: Sorry, I get super bored with, like, the, um, you know, you have to, when you're doing the dance of your PhD or you're doing the dance of a book, you have to write this statement in the beginning, right? I am this, and this is my relationship with with the participants. And it kind of is, like, one or two paragraphs in the beginning of the book, and then it just gets completely forgotten about. I mean, not not everybody does this, but I kind of, I, I felt this kind of tension in my PhD that I was just kind of writing this participant positionality statement. And then it kind of just, Disappeared and just sort of died, and then you think, "Well, well, actually, that's a really carefully crafted statement." So that statement that you write in in your positionality, your reflexivity statement, doesn't really say that much because you're you're writing about what you want to say, what you the, the, how you want to be perceived, um, and so I got super frustrated, and my frustration meant that I kind of removed all that from the book. But it's still there, isn't it? It's still really there. And anyone who knows me knows, knows how much I'm written into this book, really. But I think, again, if you look back, you think if you're going to do some things again. I think I might have done some more work in kind of talking about my own involvement. And I did a little bit in the, the last chapter, actually. Um, in the last chapter about location, I, I did try and situate myself throughout the book in, in of what I was observing. And particularly some of the physicality of it. So I was, I was quite early pregnant. One of the last times I went up to Throttle Hole, and I was so ill. I was so so ill, um, and I had a baby who had really kind of clung on to clung on to life. It hadn't been that straightforward. Um, and I remember that I, I was walking around, I was walking around with one of the um, female monks there who I got on really well with, and we were looking at the, the pet cemetery and the pet graves um, because outside Throstle, they have that. And I had to stop because I was actually probably going to be sick, and um, <clears throat> and I have written about this, and uh, and that's what made me pause to see the, the pet graves, and what made me pause to think about okay, so what are these untold stories like? Who are these pets? Who owned them? And why are they here in this in this cemetery in the wilds of Northumberland? And I think probably if I hadn't paused then, if I hadn't stopped, if I hadn't taking the foot off the gas and thinking about, you know, I desperately wanted to interview her about certain things. But if I hadn't paused, if I hadn't been um, unwell or I have not been kind of embodied as a person there, um, I'm not sure I would have paid attention to certain things. And I kind of think that's really important to reflect on. I'm not sure I'm done with my reflections on that kind of stuff. I'm not sure I'm done with my reflections methodologically on my position. Um, in relation to this, but I'm hoping this is ongoing. I don't think you need to have, write a book that's the final word or a PhD that's the final word. You grow and you develop and you change.
1: Definitely. Um, one of the themes that you explore throughout the book, I think, is this kind of narrative within um, these, well, the word convert we, we're not sure on, but I'll just use it for the ease of yeah. um, asking about <laughs> the the convert nuns. Um, this theme of class and how white um, converts are kind of usually considered middle class and highly educated. And I want to ask you about that. And how do you think this designation shaped how they engaged with Buddhism and how they made contact with Buddhist groups?
0: I think that's such an interesting question. and I'm not sure I entirely know the answer to it. But I think it's really, really important to think about, and actually this kind of is a feature of some future research I'm hoping to do in relation to class and um, and British Buddhism because I think if you if you if you just have a passable um, understanding of the literature on Western Buddhists, often it, it comes up with that sort of fairly familiar trope. this so is the white middle class, highly educated and to a certain extent, my participants do reflect that um and participants in some convert movements do reflect that but it's not the only picture how do i think it shaped their engagement with buddhism i suspect there's cultural cachet um in their highly educated um middle class status and not all were like that so i'm just i'm very conscious of not kind of lumping everyone in together in um in the ability to kind of take a non-mainstream way of living you know i think you often have to be quite secure economically socially politically in order to do that i mean maybe not i think this is such a such an interesting question and i'm struggling to answer it clearly because i think there needs to be loads more thinking about it in terms of class because just saying that all buddhists in in britain now even all convert buddhists in britain are middle class is wrong just saying that they're all white is wrong um, and, but there has been some dominant narratives that have shaped the way academics have seen things and also shaped the way some Buddhist groups have approached things. So I think we've got way more, way more thinking to do, um, way more uh, research, way more contemplating, way more listening to do um, about Buddhist, to Buddhists who don't fit that mold. Um, and, uh, and this is kind of what I'm hoping
1: to, um, to look at in the future as well Well, I'm looking forward to that research um one of the themes I have to ask you about is the topic of celibacy so Mm. you mentioned that some of the nuns um live a celibate lifestyle while some of them are still married or um, continue on with other relations and even some of them uh got into new relationships after they'd converted or become practitioners I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about this kind of Diversity in practices. Absolutely. I mean it's really, really
0: diverse. And, and this and these are the kind of things I stumbled over when I was thinking um thinking about um, you know, I used the term ordination because it's the term that my participants used. So I was kind of drawing a term from from them. So all of them use the term ordination when they talked about their practices. They said, I am ordained, because that's the kind of familiar English term that we use. Um but all of them did all of the different groups that were part of my study did kind of different things. So some, they fit the kind of traditional celibate, um, not handling money, you know, Theravada um, model of ordination, um, celibate communal living. Um, some might have wanted to do that. So those who are kind of part of uh, some Tibetan groups, some might want to do that. But um, they didn't have a monastery of their particular tradition. So they had to live um, you know, in, in kind of household ways, but try to mix their ordination up. Um, and some people were part of groups, for example, Triratna, Ratna, who um, have an ordination lineage, but it's not a celibate ordination lineage, although some practitioners did choose to practice celibacy. Um, but they weren't required to um, not be married. And there were some kind of flexibilities in between. So this kind of term ordination that we're using is really complicated. It's complicated elsewhere, but it's really complicated in the British context as you have a variety of different groups who have drawn on traditions and lineages that have come from sometimes from outside of the UK, sometimes um, from within the UK, and drawing on loads um, loads of different traditions. And so you're kind of using this catch-all term. It's the same as the problem with convert you're using this catch-all term ordination. But in reality, that the, their lives were already different. And sometimes that was dominated by the group and their teachings. And sometimes that was like an individual response. You know, they very much wanted to be ordained, but there's no monastery, so they have to live as householders. They have to try to practice um, celibacy, but they have to handle money because otherwise, there's not enough. There's no support. So it actually leads, and I think I tried to explore this in this book. Well, I did try and explore this in the book. It leads to loads of tensions for women who are trying to do their best, or for some women who are trying to do their best with practices, but come against the very real difficulties of being a Buddhist nun or being an ordained Buddhist person in the contemporary British context. You know, you still have to go to Tesco's. You still have to sort out your gas bill, particularly if there is no monastery within your tradition. And it's really, really tough and it's really, really difficult. And for some women, they flourish in that setting, but for some women, they don't. And it has felt lonely and tricky. And I kind of tried to capture that in the book.
1: Would you say that this loneliness is because they're in this British context in that there's not many other um, nuns or practitioners in the same position as they are? Or is it just the loneliness of starting a new life that's very different from the one that you've been leading before.
0: I kind of think it's both. So with with within some of the groups, within some of the traditions that I spent time with, they're actually, they actually they're really really they're really well established, they're really well set up. They have lo- they have loads of support networks with people. The ordination is is kind of clear. They're set up in monasteries, they're well established. Okay? That's not to say there aren't problems because in any kind of intentional community, in any community there are problems. <clears throat> or issues for individuals or issues for groups of people. But for those women who um, maybe didn't have those kinds of established support networks, the loneliness comes, I think, from trying to do something different. The loneliness comes because sometimes Buddhist practice is really hard and a nun's life, um, Buddhist monastic life is really quite hard and particularly without any financial support because some of them do this with no financial support. And that's really, really hard. Um, Some of the loneliness comes from, uh, as it was reported to me, is that some lay Buddhists Buddhists might not have, particularly those from other convert groups, might not understand the nun's life enough and so might not provide enough support. Um, And some of them felt that they... Um, didn't always have such a deep understanding that might have been in an Asian context about their life choices and about the value of of being a monastic or the value of being an ordained person. And they certainly weren't criticising lay communities, but they're saying it's kind of a different social and cultural um, context within which they're trying to practise. And for some of them, their teachers were outside of the UK, so they were kind of ordained in... um, they might have been ordained outside of the uk and they come back to practice at home and for someone that was kind of lonely without their teacher that teacher relationship was really important for many women and it can be quite lonely and you know living a non-mainstream lifestyle for many people um, is really tricky it's really tricky to be the only buddhist nun in your village it's really tricky Um, And I guess that's why I think about the bravery, because it's not just the bravery of starting these communities. It's the bravery of keeping them going. Um, And and I think many of the women that I spoke to were terribly brave. I I called them pioneers. And and indeed they were. And that's not just those in the kind of 60s and 70s. It's now. Um, And they really are at the forefront of um, really trying to establish Buddhist practices in this country. Um, and, and it takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of guts.
1: Definitely. Um, when thinking about these themes, I can't help but consider it in terms of some comparative uh, way. And I think about the the newness of, of these different movements for women in the UK and how, that is obviously very difficult. They're the only people doing it around them and they feel like they might be very alone. But when I think about the Asian context, I think maybe it's just a very human feeling, even Mm -hmm. though there might be an established uh, monastic community or nunnery, Mm -hmm. um, say, in Thailand or Burma, wherever. From an individual perspective, they're still making a huge life change and they're, they're leaving their families, they're shaving their hair off, they're putting on robes. And from a very individual point of view, that probably affords some type of loneliness that is maybe universal, even though there's different kind of contextual factors. But yeah, it definitely made me think about um, nuns in Asia as well, and this kind of universal theme of feeling different and um, trying to adapt to a different way of life.
0: Absolutely, and I I kind of wouldn't want to put across the the picture that what we're having here are a load of women who are lonely um, because that isn't really the case. Um, uh, Some are, you know, these are kind of natural human emotions. Like you say, when you're kind of doing something that perhaps is not mainstream, you might not have your full family understanding of it. Um, I remember one of my participants telling me, it's kind of weird when your family don't even know how to pronounce your name. You know, you take, you take on an ordained, a Pali, or Sanskrit name. It's kind of weird when your family don't know how to pronounce it. And there is a kind of loneliness. And there's also a, an extreme bliss as well in really kind of being true to oneself and, and living life in the way that um, you truly want to live it. And I, I think I got that bliss from them. You know, I, I really, um, you know, like I said, I was overwhelmed with the kinds of practices that they were doing. And um and the peace that many of them brought to, um, they brought to their lives, and 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 like I said, the bravery of of making a non mainstream decision. But but I think it is it is a hard path. I mean, make no mistake, living in community, living in an intentional community isn't easy. It isn't easy even when it's working. But if it's starting to fall apart with issues in relation to gender equality, it's even worse. And particularly when people. Um, when women or indeed men have made very, very strong commitments to certain communities, when, um, when their ideals aren't realised, and this has happened in relation to gender equality, it's a really tough time. Um, it's a really tough time. If you have committed since the age of 18 or 19 or 20 or something to a particular way of practising or being, and then after 15 years you're really starting to question it, um, it's really tough. I think it's really tough mentally. Um, So there's loads of things going on for women trying to keep their practices going, even those within established communities, like you say.
1: Definitely. It's interesting that you mentioned the the Pali and Sanskrit names and families not being able to pronounce them. You also mentioned how some of the um, women, when they go and visit their families who aren't so accustomed with this type of lifestyle, um, they wear wigs or they put on Mm. their civilian clothes. Could you tell us a bit more about that? I found that really interesting.
0: Now, I don't know if that's an adaptation that's used um, elsewhere in the Buddhist world. You know, it may well be. I wouldn't want to say that that's just something that's happening in Britain. But these are just one of those, uh, when I was talking about kind of how practices might be adapted. Um, and some of my participants were saying to me, when you shave your head um, in terms of you know, taking ordination and you're shaving your head, and you're making this kind of physical dress and body changes. Um, it's different for men because actually a, a man can just put a jumper on and walk around a town centre with a shaved head, and no one really pays him any mind. But seeing a woman with a shaved head, people make a number of assumptions, um, and sometimes it's quite difficult. I think this is just you know kind of another of the elements of difficulty um, when you are um, going into town or. Um, you know going to the post office or whatever it is that, that you still need to do um, you know if you are looking so different people do give you funny looks and a lot of my participants talked about how people gave them funny looks in the street or assumed that they'd had cancer and chemo and kind of came up to them and um, and gave them lots of sympathy because I don't think we're quite used to in this country seeing Buddhist monastics on the street You know, and that's different than in um, there are different issues at play in Thailand for example with women wearing robes um, but um, you are still more used to that kind of visual, ascetic experience of a monastic, which we're kind of not in this context. Um, I mean, many of my participants, they didn't just posit themselves as um, you know being criticised by wider society, not at all. And many of them said people were nicely curious and they enjoyed the curiosity. But I think what some of the groups that allowed people to wear civilian clothes when they went to visit their parents, it's kind of, I thought that was a kindness that was rooted in kindness. Try not to upset um, people who are unfamiliar with the Buddhist way of life. Some some of the parents might be unfamiliar. And I thought that that was a real kindness and a real adaptation that showed a kind of kindness and an understanding because some of my participants um, said that their mothers or fathers in particular were really shaken by seeing them with a shaved head um, and really shaken and it was trying to do them a kindness. Not everybody um, followed those. Um, it, it was an allowance. you know. Not everybody followed that. They didn't have to um, wear civilian clothes. But um, I also think it came as a respect for the robes as well. So one of my participants, a Tibetan nun, who was a householder, um, who... who, who uh, had to live alone with no monastic support. Um, She didn't want to dig the garden wearing her robes because her robes were precious to her. So she might stay in the maroon colours for doing those kind of mundane activities. But it was kind of um, trying to balance those householder responsibilities of living alone and having to work, but sticking with the same colours. And that's why I wrote a whole chapter on dress and names and bodies Because I felt that that was such an interesting way in which to explore women's day to day, everyday lived experiences of Buddhist practice through the kind of changes that they made on ordination um, and uh, and commitments that they they sort of wore on their bodies and on themselves.
1: Definitely answered your question there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you did. I guess what I was thinking in response to that is, as Buddhism becomes more um, visible in the UK, do you think this kind of, well, I'm not sure how many groups um, follow this uh, tradition or this allowance of wearing um, civilian clothes, but as Buddhism becomes more visible, maybe, do you think they'll begin wearing their robes more out and about and with their families or they'll continue to wear the civilian clothes I mean I'm just interested in how things might change really yeah I know I I think most of my
0: participants actually just wore robes all the time um and and it was only a couple of them that didn't Um, Do I think that it will um, change in future? Yeah, I think it's probably changed since I did the research in a way. And I think it's really rapidly changing because uh, Buddhism has a particular, I think Buddhism is such an interesting religion to study in in terms of the contemporary British context, Um, because it it, it takes a particular place in the public sphere. Um, It's kind of seen in lots of ways, I think, in, in the British context as an acceptable face of religion, um, you know, many people, I've had many students in my classes say to me, I'm not really religious, but you know, I could be into Buddhism. I think if I was going to choose anything, it'd be Buddhism. And a Buddhism is a philosophy, not a religion. Um, and like I said, you know, you can go into buy. It, it, I can remember before the coronavirus times in Freshers Week where they would display all the posters. You know, a significant amount of those posters for sale The student were Buddhist related posters. Um, and I think it's kind of an acceptable face of religion in so many ways um, in in Britain. And I don't think people are not curious. I, I do think things will change, but Buddhism is, is seen as um, very accepted, although the, the monastic path, I think, is still not well understood by everybody.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and on this theme of change and continuity, what do you think is... What do you think the future holds for um, women in British Buddhism?
0: Again, I think that's such an interesting question as well, thinking about the future. I think women will continue to contribute highly to to British Buddhist communities. Statistically, there are more women involved in British Buddhist groups or Buddhist groups in Britain than men. not, Not by a huge way, but statistically there are still more women involved than men. Um, which is a pattern that you see across different religious traditions anyway, Um, a greater involvement of women. Um, I think women will um, begin and have begun already to establish themselves as really important teachers in their own right. Um, I'm hoping that by shining a light on women's uh, practices and women's involvement in um, Buddhist groups in Britain, that we continue to recognise their um, their achievements and um, how they have shaped um, Buddhist groups, and also the tensions. I, I hope that we um, <clears throat> that what will happen in future is that we continue to have a more complicated understanding of um, women's religious practices in relation to Buddhism, and I hope that we can challenge. Some of the assumptions that might be made about Western women who are involved in um, in Buddhist practice that they're not all um, they're not all feminist. They are not all trying to challenge the hierarchy. They're actually trying to practice in really complicated ways. Um, and uh, and I'm kind of hoping that we continue to develop our understanding of, of nuance. You know, I expected them all to be feminist, and they weren't. Um, and that challenged me as a practitioner, that challenged me as a person, and as a researcher. Um, and these are kind of, I, I want to explore the nuance and I want to make sure that we have nuance in our understanding of their lives. What will change? I, I hope that women will get more supported in a way in whatever it is that they want to do, in whatever organisation they want to um, be engaged with. Um, I'm hoping that an understanding of their different experiences um, and what they bring to Buddhist practice will be increasingly accepted. You know, as these generations age, and one of the things I talked about in the book but didn't go into much detail of was changes around menopause. And some of my participants were talking about how, you know, they'd begun Buddhist practice as um, as sort of young um, young women um and as they are aging and their needs differ so you know the the, um some of my participants talking about some personality changes that might happen around menopause and some of the difficulties the kind of discomfort that you might feel in in a physical way around menopause um they were having to kind of adjust their practices In, in the beginning for example they were talk, A couple of my participants were talking about what happens during menstruation and actually how really difficult it is to um, sit in meditation when you're having a really heavy period or where, when you are um, having suffering from bad period pains. Actually, they talked about how they sort of just battled through that and just kind of were kind of fairly stoic throughout that. And now uh, as they're aging, they're thinking about how it, it's not necessarily important just to kind of battle through the menopause, but actually it's maybe important to kind of adjust practice and for people to recognize in wider communities, some of the changes that affect women. Um, and and I really like that. I think that's a kind of maturing of a community, recognizing the different needs of different people. And that's not just women, that's all different people. Um and I kind of think we will continue to see this um, maturing of communities and the sub- and subsequent changes.
1: That's a really interesting theme to consider. I know in the Southeast Asian context, um, when women have gone through their menopause, there are specific meditation and kind of temple sleeping rituals that they engage in. But mm. I don't know anything about when they're going through the process itself. So that sounds really interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of um, hoping that we're allowed to, you know, th- th- now we're allowed to uh, explore these kinds of issues and that women feel comfortable exploring these kind of issues because it's still really taboo, the menopause.
1: Definitely. Um, I'm just conscious that we've been talking for about an hour, <laughs> so maybe we should wind wind up the conversation. Um, but I'll ask a final question, which is what are you working on next?
0: OK, so um, <clears throat> I-, I will always remain interested in gender. That that That's a, a primary interest of mine. Um, but I um, have recently um, very kindly been awarded a British Sociological Association uh, Study of Religion, uh, Sociology of Religion Study Group uh, grant, SOCREL Study Group grant, it's a seed corn grant. And I'm looking at um, exploring the uh, contours of the sacred and the secular in um, contemporary British Buddhism. What that means is that I'm um, I want to look at this from two angles. So I want to look at uh, introductory retreats in British Buddhist centres and also so-called secular retreats in British Buddhist centres. But I also want to look at um, magic, protection and healing in um, in British Buddhist communities. I think so often... Um, The assumptions that we make about uh, Buddhism in the West is that it's rational, it's scientific, um, it's kind of removed all the supernatural elements. That isn't my experience of practice. It's not my experience as a practitioner. It's actually not the practices that I like as a practitioner. Um, And so I want to kind of explore these ideas of how magic and healing and the supernatural Um, are are going on within British Buddhist communities, including British Buddhist convert communities, to kind of challenge some of the assumptions. So that's the project that I'm putting together over the next couple of years that will involve, I hope, a survey um, and a number of in-depth ethnographic interviews. Um, I'm also really hoping to um, start to build up a little network of other people interested in um, studying uh, Buddhism in Britain, um, that's part of this larger grant, this this smaller grant that I've got, um, and that might develop into some larger grants um, for us to work on collaboratively, because I absolutely love collaborative work. Um, and so if anybody is listening who's interested in um, studying Buddhism in Britain, whether it's a PhD student or academic, um, please do drop me an email or drop me a line, because I'd love to Um, create a kind of network of us uh, looking at these, um, looking at the British context or centering the British context.
1: That sounds great. And it sounds like there's some good research opportunities for potential PhD students and researchers out there. Well,
0: there's tons, Um, there's absolutely tons.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, Thank you so much, Caroline. It's been such an interesting talk, uh, conversation. I've learned so much. Um, It's been really nice to talk to you.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about my fabulous participants and and my book. I'm, I'm really, really grateful. Thank you.